Hello and welcome to Review of Systems, your podcast on primary care innovation, payment reform, health policy, and more. I'm Thomas Kim. This week, we're continuing our series, bringing you interviews with speakers from the Second Starfield Summit, which was held in April 2017, bringing together leaders in primary care to collaborate on paving paths towards health equity and social accountability. Starfield Summit 2 was primarily sponsored by Family Medicine for America's Health. The Oregon Health and Sciences University in Ochin.、Uh, we're continuing the discussion from that conference in this podcast, and we want to thank the folks at FMA Health for setting up this series. This week's guest is Dr. Andrew Baysmore, one of the country's preeminent family medicine health service researchers. He's the director of the Robert Graham Center for Policy Studies in Family Medicine and Primary Care, which conducts research and analysis. To inform the American Academy of Family Physicians' policy work, you'll find his published works on access to care for underserved populations and primary health care workforce in pretty much any and every family medicine journal. He's a prolific researcher, and there were so many interesting works in his research portfolio that we could have talked to Andrew about. But for this week, we're doing a deeper dive on his Starfield Summit idea of community vital signs. And how achieving equity through primary care means checking more than blood pressure.、Uh, the idea is we have to bring community-level data into the primary care setting to help inform how to get out of the walls of the clinic to do good community-oriented primary care. You can find a link to his 10-minute talk on our website.、Uh, one quick note: we did have Andrew on a suboptimal network connection, so please、uh, forgive us for some of the bumps in the audio during our conversation. Dr. Andrew Baysmore, welcome to the program.、Uh, thanks. I'm. I am、uh, grateful you inviting me.、Uh, do you mind giving the listeners just a short introduction to who you are? Sure. I, I'm a family physician.、Um, I live in Northern Virginia and work in the Fairfax Family Practice、uh, Resident, also a VCU、uh, teaching center, and my. Full-time、um, paying profession is as the director of the Graham Center for Policy Studies in Family Medicine and Primary Care, which is、uh, downtown in Washington D.C. and is a part of the American Academy of Family Physicians, which grants it、um, a bit of an unusual status for an association. We really get to、uh, to work within a, a great organization, but but have an agenda setting and, and editorial independence from it,、uh, meaning that. We get to explore exciting areas like we're going to talk about today,、um, because we think they're they're important and they have some some policy relevance, and and then write papers and have conversations with you without an association's、uh, oversight censorship. I think a lot of our listeners would、uh, certainly accept that social determinants of health、uh, matter, that where you live matters, that zip code has a Uh, strong effect on your health, perhaps、uh, greater than your genetic code. And you argued in the Starfield Summit talk that、uh, we've mapped out enough to understand about social determinants th- that it outweighs many of the things we do in the medical system. So I guess, given that, what should primary care do? What what, what becomes primary care's responsibility in this framework? Well, I think that's a great question, and I love the way you're you're fast forwarding to. What really matters, which is the the how, and if you'll tolerate it, I will back up just a step and say I think it's、um, 
it is important uh, to note what you said, that most of our listeners accept that the social determinants of health uh, may influence value more than traditional medical care. Because I'd say when we started using words like community vital signs, started talking about uh, primary care is not only role in, but the the data-driven possibilities for incorporating uh, social determinants into electronic health records, um, I think establishing that 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 very clear notion in the public health world in the healthcare space, even within the primary care space, was was not as obvious, mm. at least not as obvious to, uh, to all. And I still think um, uh, they may not. You, your enlightened uh, listenership uh, may not, uh, you know, be among the majority who really accept that these are not only important, but we should be doing something about these. Um, and I think it's, you know, even since we started writing some articles for the background of, of that Starfield talk, it's an incredible steps forward. But, but when you ask a question like, what's primary care's responsibility in this construct? I think, I think you have to go back and look at the, the roots and origins of primary care. And in, in our named Starfield Summit, we were acknowledging that, that, a, uh, that the namesake, Barbara Starfield, had said the, the critical... Uh, centrality of primary care in a health system depends on longitudinal, continuous caring relationships, comprehensive care, first contact. But I think another C that didn't show up but was pretty implicit in her notions that those functions to better equity, access, lower cost and quality uh, was a C, you know, called and the pioneers of community-oriented primary care, um, they would have found it very difficult to separate community and place from primary health care and its responsibility. Um, I actually had the pleasure of, uh, of visiting as a, um, I, again, a resident, the original community health center network in, in rural South Africa. They, they conceptualized these notions of operating outside of a health space, a health space in really any community context, and called it community-oriented primary care. And long before we had the data and digital opportunities that we, you know, again, enjoy today in 2017, these were really pioneers in integrating uh, mostly primary data uh, capture and what you'd call patient data together to understand the most important issues for their community and how to address them. And so it's spread all over the world. Uh, You know, their mentee, Jack Geiger, uh, and others really set up our first community health centers in the United States built on this notion that primary health care uh, occupies a central space not only in, in health systems, but, but in community economics and in patients' ability to achieve health. And that if you're not addressing, you know, again, issues such as housing, water supply, sanitation, uh, then you're really not going to, with any health care model, allow folks to move forward and achieve health. So I just wanted to set that up before diving into what's our responsibility in this construct in 2017. I think it's really born of a historical notion that that we occupy critical space, this this nidus, this juncture between what we call public health or community-based health and health care. That's where primary care should live, at least according to some real giants in our field. Um, I I would love to unpack one, one thing you said there. Uh, which was uh, the availability of data and um, 
And, you know, you make the argument that working in the community requires working with data. And, and I was wondering if you could unpack why to go from primary care to community-oriented primary care, uh, data is an important bridge in that. So I think that tells a more of a public health story than what might have originally been labeled a primary care story. It's, it's John Snow's um, I, analysis of the source of the 1854 London cholera epidemic, which, of course, is famous in the annals of public health uh, and is also famous in the, uh, the annals of geospatial health technology is, is one of those first spatial epidemiologic exercises, but, but really sort of what many prim, you know, primary care pioneers that followed had done, whether it was Gene Farley or Curtis Haynes, who flew over uh, his county in Georgia taking aerial photographs and starting to stitch together uh, pictures of where his patients were living with their utilization patterns and the diseases he was diagnosing them with. Um, we've been trying to do this with far less sophisticated methods for a long time. I think, I, I think what, what you're asking and, and what I'm uh, hoping gets pointed out in some of our articles and work is that we uh, in primary care and certainly you know, in our practices are, are naturally drawn to gathering information and taking undifferentiated uh, presentations, be it the individual patient or the community, and trying to solve problems, trying to use data and information to, you know, unpackage mysteries about what is uh, preventing optimal health and, and really about opportunities to, uh, to more uh, proactively and positively promote health. Uh, and that, that requires data. Um, hmm. I, when we speak to the opportunities in this age we live in uh, of what we label big data, and big data really means big data, big software, big hardware, a uh, lot of secondary information that we gather from many, many sources you know, in 2017 that, that these pioneers just didn't have. Um, we live in an age labeled uh, an age of democracy of data, and this democratization of data and these access to not just geospatial technologies, um, but the kind of hardware, software packages that made John Snow drool uh, it imperative, uh, and, and frankly, uh, make it our obligation to to take advantage of what's available in aggregated population health data um, at zip code, census tract, block level, and link it up with what we know about our patients. For the average primary care clinician or, or clinic, um, what becomes the major barriers to looking at and analyzing this data? Um, opportunities not mean easily accessible and comprehensible tools are readily available in all primary care practices, nor the science to guide us in our decision-making, even if we had uh, these data and were able to make meaning out of them. So as I, I mentioned in the, the Starfield presentation with an image of an airplane being built and flown at the same time, I, this is an exciting and a, and a daunting time. We're acknowledging that social determinants, influence morbidity and mortality, enough for primary care to pay attention, but we really don't have lots of tools to allow a primary care clinician who faces incredible administrative burdens and burnout, loss of joy in practice, and say, you know what, in addition to everything else you're doing, mm -hmm. we'd like you to, to both acquire the tools and make the time to address these social determinants. And by the way, we really don't have 
in the way that we might for other areas of evidence-based medicine, an evidence-based population health model uh, for the primary care setting yet. So when we say it's, you know, we, when we move past why is this primary care's responsibility uh, and into how can they actually um, pick up the mantle of, of responsibility and do anything about it, it's a lot murky. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news there is I think some really uh, incredible leaders, clinicians, uh, patients, uh, community health representatives, uh, and others are, are working on the problem. I think there's a lot uh, underway that, that will help to create more tools to make, uh, again, addressing social determinants more possible. And, and again, it's, it's not that we're going to learn without lots of trial and error. Um, I think the early that I've witnessed and to a limited degree participated in and, and trying to see what primary care clinicians um, are capable of processing I don't mean cognitively. I mean in terms of their their time and financial uh, resources capable of, of processing. Um, you know, again, it's it's frustratingly difficult to to imagine the average primary care clinician um, knowing how to take on uh, homelessness, mm-hmm. um, take on a situation like we saw in Flint, Michigan, with its, its water supply issues a few, of a few years ago, mm-hmm. situations that the natural disasters are presenting in Houston and Florida and Puerto Rico, that the crisis presents beyond simple medical care, and, and even that's not simple. Um, I don't think the answers are easy. I think what's increasingly obvious is that we are not making the kind of progress with incredible health care expenditure towards health that we need to, and until we begin through trial and error to try to tackle these social determinants, um, we won't. You and your colleagues have written about a particular vision uh, in how this type of data could be incorporated, integrated, and then uh, acted upon in the primary care setting uh, called community vital signs. Uh, can you describe what that what that looks like and what you're imagining? So, you know, I think we recognize, and I mentioned the IOM report earlier, that if you don't involve the patient and the community in direct primary data collection, you're really going to miss out in efforts to identify, which is the first step in, in community-oriented primary care, uh, patient and community diagnoses. Um, however, I also said that we're faced with so many burdens I, you know, already, whether it's through the meaningful use requirements that we've faced uh, in our electronic health records, I, the measurement requirements of MACRA, uh, and other uh, data collection burdens already on the clinician, I, that it seems necessary to be looking for alternative pathways to primary data collection if we're going to tackle uh, social determinants of health. And so, you know, we did not for a minute think that our community vital signs approach, which I'll describe in just a minute, um, is the only path, but it may be a a more um, efficient way of getting getting information that is important into clinician and planners' uh, hands as they as they tackle uh, social determinants of health. And, and the basic idea that we have through the American Community Survey, the census, and a host of other public and large scale data gap efforts, uh, again myriad. Um, proxies for social determinants of health, and sometimes even social determinants of health uh, measures themselves. These can be joined with patients through uh, geocoding technology and geospatial technologies 
fairly, again, uh, simply. And what we have done is, is try to demonstrate how you can take large uh, batches of patient records, claims records, utilization records, records from an electronic health record, and put them through geocoding, which essentially creates an X and a Y coordinate for every patient. And you can do it not only where they live, you can do it where they work. You can, you can imagine there could be multiple X, Y coordinates in the future. And then actually say, well, what do we know from very small area measures that are captured in the census and other population records that might be important for us about that patient's neighborhood that they live and might actually complement things that that patient reports mm -hmm. uh, if we're you know, able to, um, to gather that information uh, in your office. And we've been building libraries uh, that tap not only, um, again, the census records, but information coming from nationally representative surveys, um, information that, that rolls up or aggregates what we know but still at very small areas about disease prevalence, about health behaviors, about utilization of emergency rooms uh, and hospitals, and creating a library that one might join together information uh, from a patient record. So, and taking that a step further, if you have a patient, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, and you know after you geocode their, uh, their record that they live at um, a certain address and you can take information about the neighborhood that that address is in uh, and link it together, you get, a, you know, again, a, a lot more information that, um, that you can bring to bear in a patient encounter that's important to their health. Um, you're able to, to look at poverty, just as one example, since Nancy Krieger and other social sociologists have taught us that census track level poverty has incredible predictive power for a lot of important patient outcomes, all the way up to mortality. And what they're basically saying is, again, small area features drive um, STDs, low birth weight risk. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, mortality. And I'd like to know, as my patient walks in the door, and I know their, their height, their weight, their respiratory rate, and their blood pressure, I'd also like to know the uh, conditions, socioeconomic, uh, and otherwise, that are going to shape their health, and that they're going to help me to better understand how to cater uh, my behavioral counseling, my accessing of, um, you know, again, social services, my partnering with the kind of resources, uh, not only in the healthcare system, but in the community that might help them achieve better health, like understand who I should target so they serve a triage function, but also how to target them better. Hmm. And so I think in our, our model of, of community vital signs, it's really about making use of large, uh, again, say readily, I don't mean easily, but readily accessible population health information um, that currently is not available to me when I see my patient or when I sit down and look at my panel and bringing this to bear without having to go and ask patient after patient um, about the, the resources in their neighborhood, the conditions of their neighborhood. And, you know, Thomas, I take it a step further because we, we've certainly heard criticism of the notion that knowing a patient's milieu isn't, you know, uh, offers anything beyond a patient just reporting, uh, you know, about the area they live in. But I think we would we would push back on that slightly and say it's not that one is necessarily a substitute for the other. It's, there is incredible uh, complementarity uh, between the two. Um, what a patient is able to report about their neighborhood comes with its own bias. 
And so if I can know what a, a patient's perception of their determinants looks like and also what very objectively the census, the behavioral risk factor surveillance survey, and many other uh, well-constructed secondary data sources say about their neighborhood, I, I have even richer information to guide my, um, you know, my patient uh, towards better health. Uh, I'd love to expand on a couple of things you said in that last response. Um, so the first would be, I have to say, I, I guess I just don't, I'm probably not as facile with the analytics of it. How do you take that population level data of the neighborhood and then kind of make it actionable for the person in front of you? Because I feel like it, I, I would worry about some risk of ecological fallacy when I say, well, you come from this neighborhood, therefore this must be a problem for you. That's a, it's a great point, and I would hope that, you know, in your clinical practice, with one piece of information, you don't make such assumptions that you guide your patient absent further conversation. So I, mm. in that particular example, um, if I know the, the wealth, the housing instability, uh, percentage of persons who are struggling with one or another social um, determinant or risk factor, I, you know, about about this neighborhood, I would want to imagine that that would offer context, not necessarily drive, but offer context as I start to make decisions about what my patient can and can't, um, you know, again, feasibly achieve. And I tackle their obesity, their diabetes, their hypertension. I, standing alone, you're absolutely right, rife with ecologic fallacy. And, you know, again, um, in need of more context, namely from the patient. But that's really our job. So when mm -hmm. you talk about community, community vital signs might mean in the patient to physician encounter. And I, I don't for a second believe that that's the principal or most important place where these community vital signs uh, uh, you know, might, might, but in that individual encounter, I think they just context. Mm. Back to Mr. Smith and a Mr. Jones, who both walk into my office, both with uncontrolled diabetes, both with uh, blood pressures that you know magnify that poor control, and both challenged to to you know again overcome their obesity, I would really like to know if has no chance of obtaining the intensive behavioral thing um, uh, that is now advised by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force to take on their obesity and reduce their high blood pressure and their diabetes, and really does. I'm probably going to be directing the former towards a very different set of community resources, or at least looking a little harder, knowing that my chances of success with you know with the patient are, are far less than the second. Um, we also we we know an awful lot about um, uh, the the differences between the wealthiest person person in a you know again a poor neighborhood and the poorest person in a wealthy neighborhood and. I think we know that uh, that the way that we'll cater our behavioral health counseling is going to be different between the two. Hmm. I think we also talked um, when you get to the panel man, more population health side. We are naturally drawn to look for and understand clusters, clusters of symptoms, clusters of disease, also clusters of social determinants. Um, we talked about hot spotting in the last ten years in medicine, i.e., looking where high utilizers tend to. Um, you know, tend to be found for costs, for ER visits, for excessive hospitalizations. I think the power of adding your cold spots and an awareness of your cold spots, boy, where those clusters sit on top of 
predictors of poor health, the public health world, um, again, poverty, instability, low social capital, et cetera. I think those are powerful um, to start to plan population health management. Some of them are deeply intuitive. And one thing we're learning is, you know, these, these community vital signs I may have far greater value in certain settings, the community health center setting being an obvious one, than they do in others. But we're testing this in a fairly suburban, affluent um, environment in Northern Virginia, where our residency program fits, and, and finding that there is still information to be gleaned that's useful in population health management, particularly for the outliers. So, Andrew, um, where are we in terms of kind of data system interoperability with these uh, large data sets and with health information exchange? Um, I imagine it plays a role in being able to integrate, you know, what you see as community vital signs into an EHR. Sure. Um, you, you obviously have great advantage in, um, in practices and practice networks that, that have a data aggregation, uh, you know, again, function within their organization. We, in my own organization, we, we roll up into Privia Health. In community health centers in uh, the West, they have the, the benefit of working with what was the Oregon Community Health Information Network, now called OCHIN. When you have a, what, you know, in that particular case, what is the, the very successful remnant of a health information, or an HIE health information exchange, you have someone that, that knows data and knows how to merge these forms of data and then push it back to you and push it back eventually into your electronic health record. So in the, um, uh, not just the paradigm pile, the early adopt community, this is extremely achievable and possible. Uh, it's harder if you're just recently getting on board with the HR adoption, don't have aggregation um, uh, partners uh, to imagine uh, doing this today. But I, I think we have moved, uh, you know, again, um, to the point of, I wouldn't say universal, but uh, near universal option of electronic health records. And I think that the data aggregators are only going to continue to, uh, to grow in number and that their capacities with geospatial technologies uh, will only grow as well. All right. Dr. Andrew Bazemore, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much, Thomas. You've been listening to Review of Systems. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to get weekly updates. Uh, give us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. That way it's easier for others to find us. We'd love to hear from you. So you can find us on Twitter at ROS Podcast or on Facebook at Review of Systems. You can email me at thomas at rospod.org. And you can find an online archive of our shows at rospod.org.